In Luke chapter 18, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 8. God's Word says, And Jesus told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused. But afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect me, and yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Let's pray. Lord, the grass withers and the flower fades, but your word abides forever. And we ask that your word would be clearly heard that we would hear not my insights or my thoughts, but people would hear you speaking to them, that they might not despair, but they might have heart. In your son's name we pray, amen. Well, Don Hawkins in his book, Never Give Up, recounts a coal mine collapse. A dozen men were stranded and sealed off from the rest of the world. Families were soon called and soon Hundreds were outside the mine praying and working for the trapped miners' delivery. However, efforts through the night and then to the next day got them no closer to a rescue. Too much debris seemed to be blocking the entrance, and attempts to sink a parallel entrance, a parallel mine shaft, had to be stopped because they ran into large layers of rock that could only be removed with blast. And they feared that a blast would only cause more collapse below. And they began to wonder, is there any hope? Down below, the hopes of the men began to flicker as well as their battery-powered lights began going off. Both above and below, nothing seemed possible. However, then the men below remembered that there was conduit running through the top of the mine and then up out of the mine, bringing electrical wires and one of them started tapping in Morse code, is their hope. About the same time above, they were just giving up efforts, and one of the men leaned down and said, everyone be quiet, and he listened. And he said, they're tapping something, and they got someone who could understand the cipher, and they replied, there is hope. Now the trap miners knew help was on the way. They knew that though it may take a while, hope was coming. They still had to wait in cold, pitched darkness for many more hours, but knowing that help was on the way gave them hope so they wouldn't despair. Where do you turn when despair comes plunging in? Where can hope be found as you deal with seemingly unending pain or sorrow? Like the miners, sometimes life just seems to collapse around us. It seems as though any hope is flickering out. We don't know where to turn. And this morning, Jesus speaks directly into our despair. And he's going to give us three things. 
if you want, there's space on the back to put this. First, he's going to give the problem. It's in verse 1, and that is there's despair. Despair, the problem, verse 1. Then in verses 2 through the middle of verse 8, Jesus gives a parable, and basically the parable is saying, know your God, the parable, know your God. And then third, we'll end where Jesus does. There's a question. Is there persevering faith? So the problem in verse 1, despair. The parable, know your God, in verses 2 through the middle of 8. And then lastly, the question at the end of 8, persevering faith. But it says in verse 1, And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. You know, in studying the Bible, it's always helpful to remember that the verses that are there are not random nuggets of truth dropped in randomly. They're tied into a context. Well, what's the context going on here? Well, right before this, you may remember from last week in verses 20 through 37, Jesus is teaching about the kingdom of God, about him coming back. And yet, if you look at Luke 17, 22, it says, and Jesus said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man and you will not see it. In other ways, they're going to long for Jesus to return, but it won't be right away. And that ties in here because at the end of verse 8, he says, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith? And so he's talking about this delay in his coming and us living with the injustice in the world around us, living with the suffering that he talked about in chapter 17, 25. And as we wait, we can lose heart. We can ask, how long, O Lord? And throughout scriptures, we see people dealing with this. If you go to the book of Numbers, you can read of Moses and how he led the people through the wilderness. And yet, in Numbers chapter 11, they grumble and they complain because there's no meat to eat. God had already brought them out of slavery in Egypt. God had already given them manna in the wilderness. God had already saved them from Pharaoh's army through the Red Sea. Yet now, they weep and they say in Numbers 11, 4, Oh, that we have meat to eat. We remember the fish we had in Egypt that cost nothing, except slavery. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. And then Moses cries out to God saying, Why have you dealt ill with your servant? And why have I not found favor in your sight that you lay the burden of all the people on me? And Moses is basically saying, How long, O Lord? I am weary. I'm discouraged. I despair. Well, sometimes we despair because of all the injustice around us. In 1 Kings 21, King Ahab, he's throwing a pity party because though he's the king and he has much wealth, there's a certain vineyard, Naboth's vineyard, that he doesn't have. And so Queen Jezebel says, why are you upset? You're the king. And so first she sends men to lie and say that Naboth cursed God and had a plan against the king. And they put Naboth to death. And then she gives the vineyard to Ahab. No problem. You want it? I'll just kill someone. We'll get it. And thankfully, we live in a society where we have a lot of justice, where you can appeal to judges, you can get lawyers, and you can keep your land. Well, that is if you have money and wealth and are a person in power. Your land rights, lawyers, contracts, that did very little to keep us from stealing land from Native Americans over and over again. 
did little to keep us from stealing land from African-American farmers. The Atlantic had an article a few months ago, and they showed that from 1950 to 1970, black farmers lost over 6 million acres of land due to racial policies by the U.S. government and by banks. In 1997, a lawsuit led to the U.S. Department of Agriculture having to pay $2 billion for discrimination against black farmers, and that was only from the years 1981 to 1996. How many of them cried out, How long, O Lord? I'm weary. I'm discouraged. I despair. And sometimes we go weary due to the injustice happening to us because we're believers. Daniel was sent to the lion's den because he wanted to pray. His friends were sent to the fiery furnace because they wouldn't bow to a false idol. Early Christians were arrested, tortured, stoned, and put to death. In December of 2018, Pastor Wang Li and a hundred of his congregants were arrested in China. And now Pastor Li is serving a nine-year sentence for subversion of the government. What does subversion mean? Not signing up for an officially sanctioned church and being unwilling to preach the gospel they say he has to do. And how many of them have cried out, How long, O Lord? I am discouraged. I'm weary. I despair. I know this parable here, Jesus is specifically dealing with losing heart due to injustice. I think it also speaks generally to the reality that we get discouraged weary and despair in many areas hopelessness can just seem to surround us and suffocate us we want to give up we want to throw in the towel we want to be done we want to move on we just want to forget it the obstacles are too great our efforts seem futile and nothing seems to change we're easily wearied we easily lose heart and that's not just for weak believers As you read through scripture, you can read of Moses that we already mentioned, or Elijah, or David, or even Paul, who it says he despaired of life itself. Paul often is writing to encourage believers that they may not despair. In four of his letters, he uses the exact same phrase that Jesus uses, do not lose heart. 2 Corinthians 4.16 was read earlier, and Paul writes, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Looking at our physical bodies can make us very discouraged. As we age, our muscles weaken, our skin sags, and our joints and backs, they ache. As we age, we have more and more issues that need treatment. We become discouraged. We despair at the unending pain or the ongoing medical treatment we need. And wonder, is this going to last forever? Yet Paul tells us not to lose heart because this momentary light affliction of our body will help produce eternal lasting joy. Or in Galatians 6, 9, he writes, And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we'll reap if we do not give up. This is really hard because we've tried over and over again to do the right thing. And what did it accomplish? Nothing. And we grow weary of doing good. We just want to be done and go, what good does it do to do this anyways? And Paul gives us the honest observation that we do grow weary of doing good. And that we don't always reap when we want to. 
This has always been a problem, but this is even more pressing in our society that has next day delivery. Can you have food brought to you? Instant communication. However, we're going to be frustrated and discouraged if we don't come to grips with the reality that the most important issues of life take time to change. Growth in relationships with others. Change in people's behavior. And the attitudes and thoughts of people, they change slowly. And so he tells us, don't grow weary of doing good, for in due season we'll reap if we do not give up. You know, often we need encouragement. Like the marathon runners, we need people on the side going, keep going, keep going, you can do it. We need people there giving us the Gatorade or the pickle juice or the water or whatever, saying, you can go, keep going, you will make it to the end. Well, have you lost heart? Are you worn thin, discouraged, and having basically quit? Do you perhaps wonder, God, have you forgotten me? Do you even hear my prayers? Maybe you just feel numb spiritually. You don't find any joy in reading your Bible or praying or gathering to worship. It's not just spiritual, though. It's any task you find it hard to do. You wake up and you just lie there. You don't even want to get out of bed. And as you go through the day, you find it hard to get motivation to do any of the things you know you need to do. And in the midst of all this, you wonder, is there even any point to all this? And God, are you going to bring any good out of all that is going on? You're in despair. You're discouraged. And Jesus is speaking to you and to me. And he gives us this parable so that we might be encouraged, that we might persevere, that we might get back in the game, so to speak. And so what is the parable? That's the second point, verses 2 through the middle of 8. The parable, know your God. And this parable begins with Jesus telling of an unnamed judge in some unnamed town. We don't know much about him, but we are given two specifics. He doesn't fear God, and he doesn't respect people. Your Proverbs, though, tells us the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. Yet this man doesn't care one bit about what God says. Not only that, but he doesn't care what people think about him. Now, this is not the good attribute, like, oh, he's not led by peer pressure. He stands by his convictions. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about someone who's selfish. It's the unloving attitude of living for yourself with no thought of others. In other words, don't expect any kindness, justice, or compassion from this judge. Well, the parable goes on because now it tells of this unnamed widow in verse three. In three, you know, in their society, a widow and orphans—they were the most helpless. They suffered greatly. They had the least power and influence. And you can look at Exodus twenty-two, Deuteronomy twenty-four, that tells judges specifically to care and treat the widows well. We're told in James one twenty-seven, true religion is to care for orphans and widows. However, from what we know of this judge, he won't care at all. Her being a widow, her plight means nothing to him. She's not only a widow, though, she has a problem, and she brings it to the judge asking for justice. Yet we see in verse 4, for a long time, she keeps coming and nothing happens. But after a while, verse 5, he thinks, you know what? This woman is wearing me out. I'm going to give her this so she'll just leave me alone. You know, in other words, what's going on is every time he drives into the parking lot, she's there. Hey, judge, will you take up my case today? 
Every time he breaks for lunch, she's in the lobby waiting. Hey, judge, did you look at my case? Every time he heads home from work, hey, judge, did you look at it today? Every time he steps into his office, his secretary says, you know who called again? You know who called again? Would you just please take her case? She's wearing us out. You know, every parent in their weakest moments knows what's going on here. You know you shouldn't, but you're just so tired of being asked. So you just say, go ahead, please, just leave me alone. I want you to leave me alone. Well, Jesus then calls his hearers, verse 6, to consider what the unrighteous judge did. And then he says, will not God give justice to the elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? And Jesus answers his own question, saying that God will give justice quickly. But we kind of need to pause, because did Jesus just compare God to an unrighteous judge? If your answer is yes, then the application of this parable is, so what you need to do is you basically need to irritate, bother, pester God enough so that you can kind of twist his arm and he goes, all right, I'll give you what you want. I'm tired of you bothering me. Well, is that what Jesus is teaching? Hopefully that interpretation leaves you a little like, "Mm, I don't know, that seems a little different than what we're told in the rest of Scripture. But what does this mean? Well, you have to realize the issue is not that Jesus is comparing God with this judge. Jesus is contrasting God with this judge. Notice, this is not just what we want it to say. This is what it says. Look at verse 6 again. In verse 6, he says, And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. The judge, he's unrighteous. What is God? He's just. There's a contrast between them. And so the point is, if sometimes an unrighteous, unloving judge will act for someone he doesn't even care about, won't a just and loving God answer his people? Yes. Well, why? Well, two reasons. First, because unlike the judge, God is just. Now, it may appear at times that justice is not being served, but in God's time, all things will be made right. An interesting passage is found in Revelation 6. There, believers have been martyred for their faith, and it says in Revelation 6.10, they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? In essence, They're calling for what Jesus is talking about here in Luke 18. They're calling for justice. And at this point, it hasn't happened, and so they're crying out, How long, O Lord? We too will cry that way at times. Lord, I've been praying about this for so long. How long till you're going to answer? But God does give us pictures of his swift justice. At times, it looks like he's delaying, but we see examples that it will come And it will come quickly. I mentioned Queen Jezebel earlier. How she stole through injustice another man's vineyard. And yet you may also know that then what happened? Well, her kingdom was taken away. And when the man came to get rid of her, what do they do? They throw her out. And then they go to have a meal. And when they come to bury her, all that's left is her skull, her hands, and her feet dogs have eaten the rest of her body she went from queen powerful to within 
half a day, barely anything left of her. Justice comes quickly. And the reason God does delay at times in justice is because he wants to show mercy. Any delay is that God desires all would repent. We see from 2 Peter 3. So one day Jesus will come and vindicate his saints and justice will come. Swiftly, those who abuse their power like Jezebel will be cut down and the afflicted will be lifted up. Thus know that God, the righteous one, will always do what is right. But the second reason we can take heart is Jesus is telling us that God answers prayers because we are his chosen ones. Take heart because God is not just merely an all-powerful judge. He's not up in heaven just doing justice. He's our loving Father who chose us. You know, God didn't get stuck with you. He wasn't somehow hoping that you wouldn't choose him, but oh, you chose him, so now he has to choose you. No. This is not, and I don't know what your elementary experience was like, elementary school, but I wasn't always the star athlete I am now. I know it's hard to believe, but you might remember back in elementary school, or you might be there where they say, hey, let's play kickball, and they pick two captains, and they start going back and forth. And then you can see the captains, every time they pick, they kind of look at you like, oh, he's still left. And they keep going until finally you're there, all alone. And the guy goes, all right, Jeremy, you're on our team. They didn't want you on their team, but they were stuck. All right, you're with us. That's not how God chose you. He didn't go, oh, all right, I had to get my quota of chosen people. Come on, Jeremy, you're with us. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as sons. He chose you because he loves you. We love because he first loved us. We choose him because he first chose us. He loves you. And because he's our father who chooses his children, he listens to us. Friend, brother, sister, do you trust that? Do you have confidence that comes from knowing God chooses you as his beloved child. Over the last few months, we've been watching a series of animated videos called Torchlighters. Eb and I think Joseph introduced us to it. It's really good. It's on Amazon. You can watch it for free if you have Prime. They're not paying me to say that, by the way. Uh, and the Torchlighters goes through various Christians' lives. And the one we watched this last week was about this man named Samuel Morris. In 1873, he was born Prince Kabu, the oldest son of a tribal chief in Liberia. However, one day, he was captured by another tribe, and they held him ransom. He endured severe beating and treatments, but one time, in the midst of it, he heard a voice from the heavens that said, Run! And as the voice said, Run, he felt his ropes come untied, and he ran. And over the next few days, at night, as swiftly and as secretly as he could, he kept running and running until he got to a city. And there, when he got to that city, a young boy said, come with us to this missionary church. And there, that Sunday, what the woman talked about, the missionaries, she told them about this man named Saul who was going on this road to Damascus, and he heard a voice from heaven. And Prince Kabu made this connection that there is one in heaven who's calling to me, my heavenly father. And so he trusted Christ and he 
changed his name to Samuel Morris, the man who supported the missionary. And he so wanted to tell others about Christ that he started studying, and then he wanted to go where the missionary came from. So he wanted to come to the U.S., go to Taylor University. And he was very poor. And so to get a ship to bring him across, he had to promise, well, I'll work. Well, there on the ship, he mistreated them. But he responded so well, and he endured hardship in such a way that reflected God that the captain and then eventually most of the crew came to trust in Christ themselves. And then he made it to Taylor University, and he became quite a witness. And many people wanted to come, and yet he eventually got a very serious cold, and he died. But before he died, he was on his deathbed. He was weeping, and a friend said, Don't cry, Sammy. And he replied, I cannot help it. I am so happy. My heavenly Father is calling me home. But Sammy, his friend, replied, What about your people in Africa? Your mission? Sammy replied, It is over. God chooses his workers, his own. I have trusted my Father all this time. I trust him now. Even at the moment of death, his mission, what he thought he was going to do, was going to end. But he didn't despair because he knew his father was caring for him. And what was his father doing? He was using Sammy to motivate others, who because of Samuel Morris then went back to Liberia as missionaries. So don't be crushed by despair, Jesus says, but take heart that your heavenly Father knows and cares about you, for he chose you. Thus Jesus shows us, look, we can take heart because our Father is loving, and our Father is just judge. And both of us, both of these show us that we need to persevere in faith by knowing who our God is. In other words, it's as we come to know our God that our faith is fueled. As we go through our day, our body needs something to consume. It needs fuel, so to speak. And you could fill your body with many things. You could live off Twinkies, soda, and fast food. You would live. However, you're going to have ups and downs emotionally and physically as you get sugar highs and sugar lows. What you need to have lasting energy through the day is a well-balanced diet. Well, what you need to have not highs and lows spiritually is a well-balanced diet of knowing God. Sustainable, persevering faith is fueled by knowing your God. You know, so persevering faith is not persevered, is not kept by more willpower. Persevering faith is not preserved by deep emotional experiences. Persevering faith in God is not preserved by accountability groups. Now, I'm not discounting any of those willpower, emotional experiences with God, accountability groups are all good, and we need those. But each of those is good as they point us to God himself. He is our refuge and strength. He is our help in trouble. The fuel for lasting, persevering faith is knowing God. And I don't just mean knowing God intellectually, and I don't just mean knowing God emotionally, both knowing God with your head and your heart. We need both of those linked together. Now, I do want to add a brief word of caution, and that is this passage is not covering everything. As we read the rest of Scripture, we see that God made us both body and soul. And you might not be down because of some spiritual problem. You might be discouraged. You might be down because your hormones are off. 
Maybe your thyroid is not functioning well. Maybe you're not sleeping well or something else. You know, as Christians, we should never negate the importance of our bodies. And sometimes if you're down for an extended period of time, you might need to go to your doctor and see if everything is all right physically. We might need a medical treatment or cure that will lead to the right level of hormones. We might need to change our diet or get more exercise or laugh more often. As well, the role of friends and relationships in overcoming discouragement is important to consider. We might need to just open up to those who care. You know, sometimes it's as you just share with another person that there's a release, that there's encouragement as they hear and listen and then they pray with you. And there's really so much we could say about all this, but it's important to note it because sometimes wrongly Christians have acted as though any discouragement is some spiritual sin. It might be, but it might be you need to care for your body. It might be that you just need to talk to someone. It's not always a sin. Sometimes it's a good thing to be down. If you have a friend die and you aren't discouraged, there's something wrong with you. That's not a good situation. And it might be physically impossible for you to be happy with your physical condition. Yet the flip side of all this, though, is that many people today have gone to the other extreme and everything's physical. And they deny the spiritual reality that often, but not always, we're discouraged because of our relationship with God. And thus Jesus asks a probing question, and that is, will he find faith and he returns? The third and last point, the question, persevering faith. Will there be faith on the earth when he returns, he asks in verse 8. In other words, will there be people looking to him for justice? and not seeking to get justice or revenge by themselves. Well, what does this faith look like? Well, first, from the context of this passage, we know it's continuing in prayer. That's what he says, verse 1. Told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray. He's wanting to motivate us to pray, like the widow persistently coming to God. You know, Jesus' encouragement in Luke 18 is not some generic thing. It's specifically keep on in prayer. The one pastor commented, Sometimes we say, look, we really need to pray for the work. But he replied, look, often the prayer is the work. Prayer is very hard. Prayer takes work. We, okay, I, find it easier to do just about anything but pray. Sometimes it's the easiest thing to say, oh, I'll pray for you. And the hardest time to set aside time and actually pray for them it's easy to go through a day and then get the end go did i spend any meaningful time in prayer prayer is hard work and we need to encourage each other to pray this is one reason why i believe a weekly prayer meeting is an essential part of the life of our church is that commanded in scripture well no does it have to be on wednesday night no however just like working out personally if i don't set aside some time and say, this is devoted to this activity, I'm not going to do it. And so maybe it doesn't work out for you on Wednesday. Well, find some other time where with other believers you gather to pray, to pray for one another that you might not lose heart, to pray for the church, to pray for God's kingdom to come. And yet second, this is not just prayer and faith in general. The whole context is about prayer and faith when we're dealing with 
injustice. And this is such an important theme. I want us to turn to Romans chapter 12. So please turn or tap or however you get to Romans chapter 12 to verses 17 through 21. Romans 12, 17 through 21. There it says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Verse 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So here is these words calling us to respond to injustice with mercy, not to return evil for evil. And this is one of the greatest evidences and hardest challenges of genuine faith in Christ. And that is not returning evil for evil. To trust that the evil that you've encountered and suffered from others will one day be made right. In that moment, when the person tells you off, when they push you, when they slight you, you want to let them have it. You want to lay in them. Inside of you is a raging cauldron spewing, it's not fair. I'm going to get you. And God agrees and says, it's not fair. But he also says, be patient. Trust me, I will make it right. Either they will pay for that speedily and eternally, or that punishment will go on my son. Yet not one single sin, not the slightest, smallest white lie will ever go unpunished. God is completely and absolutely just in every single thought, Word and deed will be made right. However, God is also completely and absolutely loving, and so he made a way that instead of us receiving that punishment, he would put it on his son. And as Jesus talks to them about persevering in the midst of suffering, in the midst of injustice, he's not talking in some abstract philosophical ideas like, well, one day you'll suffer or something. And let me tell you, Jesus is talking to them as he prepares for the cross. Jesus knows that justice will fall. It will fall on him. The one who always acted right was given the ultimate judgment by God. You know, on the cross, darkness, the picture of judgment, was upon the land. On the cross, he hung between two criminals as though he was one just like them. On the cross, he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Isn't isn't that the issue here? In our despair, we feel forsaken by God. We feel as though we've been given an assignment without the resources. We have a task, and we don't have the energy and power to do it. We feel abandoned, and we feel alone, and we despair. And Jesus is showing us. He's giving us the key to open the door to release us from the dungeon of doubting, despairing castle. And what is that key? 
praying to our Father and knowing our God is just and loving. I say that because how did Jesus prepare? He went into the Garden of Gethsemane and he prayed. And that prayer prepared him for on the cross when he would cry out, why have you forsaken me? Because you may know, that's from Psalm 22, but that's not the end of the psalm. Later in that same psalm, it says, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard when he cried to him. So as Jesus cries out on the cross, why have you forsaken me? He knows that psalm goes on to say, he has not ultimately forsaken you. You may feel that way, but he's just and loving. He will make all things right, and he has chosen you. He will work things out. Jesus knew that mercy triumphs over judgment and that he would rise again. He could confidently, though despairingly, go through the most unjust, unjust act in the world. Him being crucified, the innocent Son of God. He could go through that because he had the hope that God would make it right again. Do you have that hope? Do you have faith that looks to God and prays to Him? Or have you given up? You Maybe you still go through the motions, but if you're honest, you're fed up with God. You've seen too much. You've been disappointed too many times and God just isn't answering me. He is listening. He is working. He cares. It's not always on our timetable. But we see his character. We see the cross, and we see that one day all will be made right. Thus, keep praying. Keep coming to him, the God who sent his son to die for you, who chose you, who called you to be his son and his daughter says, get up, keep going, keep praying. I will bring you home. Let's pray. Oh Lord, would you give us that faith, Lord, that when you return there would be faith in us, that we would be persistent. Oh Lord, we do grow weary, we do despair, and so we cling to you. Lord, you are our refuge and strength. Lord, may you be our rock And Lord, may we be honest with one another. May we tell others of our despair and may we point each other to you. Lord, we need you. Oh, we need you. In your son's name we pray. Amen.